Good evening. Well, that was the that was uh, that was some good worship. Thanks, you guys. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So here's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to talk about I'm I'm going to talk about the kind of five things that you got to know if you want to stay engaged kind of in life. If you want to stay engaged in what God's inviting you into, stay engaged in the battle, so to speak. Like if you want to stay engaged, here's five things that really every single guy has got to know if, if you want to make it. If you want to make it to the end, if you want to be strong, if you... And, and these five things actually, like think of it like a coin, there's a heads and a tails. The heads is the hard part. And it's really confrontive and it comes against like a bunch of lies that as men that we've often believed that we're told in culture and in our world that, that don't come from the heart of our father, lies that we believe. And so these five things confront that and they're really hard and very confrontive. And then the other side, the tails of the coin is that there's like an encouragement behind it. There's like, there's something really good and really sweet about uh, being able to embrace the, the head part of the coin. Am I making sense? And so it's got a heads and a tails. It's got a really hard part and then it's got a sweet part. But it really confronts some stuff that, that, that make it hard for us to stay engaged uh, as men. And for some of you guys, you really need the heads part of this. Like all five of these things, you need this hard part. And you're, you're going to know that you need it because you're going to kind of, uh, internally, you're going to kind of resist it. You're going to rebel against it. You're going to go, no way. Like, I don't want that part. And that's you, then you're going to know it like, oh, okay, this is the part I really need. <laughs> and then for others of you, it's on the other side of the coin. The, the, the encouraging part, you're going to think, ah, that can't be true. That's not about me. And you're going to resist it. And that's how you're going to know that this is actually for you too. <laughs> I've, I've learned this over the years in, in my walk with Jesus is to pay attention to what I resist. It's like last night I was talking about the puppies in a box looking at each other, family, and... Uh, I realized as I was resisting that that there was something that God really wanted to do in me. And it led to like crying all day on my motorcycle, which is not a thing I normally do. Like I almost never do that. I cry when it doesn't start, but I don't cry like when it's running, right? So, all right, so with that said, I'm, I'm going to, but okay, so then remember these five things are built on the foundation of what we talked about last night. They're built on the foundation that our Heavenly Father deeply loves us. You know, so as Paul prays for the Ephesian church, he prays that they would know like every dimension of God's love, the height of God's love, the depth, the breadth of whatever, fourth dimension, the Doctor Who dimension, I don't know what that is, of God's, you guys don't watch Doctor Who? Come on, get with it, Doctor Who's cool. I've been watching that since the 60s. I was, I was shocked, I'm off, to, off topic now, but I'll get back. I was shocked about four or five years ago. I walked into my youngest son's room and he's watching Doctor Who. Well, it's all new characters now. And I'm like, is that Doctor Who? And he's like, how do you know? And I'm like, oh, son, there's some stuff I got to pass on to you. The fourth doctor with the scarf, he was amazing. So, yeah. All right, I'm back. I disappeared there for a little bit. So we, we, we have to build it on the foundation of God's love. And so Paul prays that we know that like in every dimension. I still haven't got to my notes yet. I keep getting distracted by their stuff. I, I love what Jesus says in John 15 when, when he says this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
It's like there's, there's, there's these little phrases throughout the New Testament that are just, that if you just let it, you just meditate on it, it'll rock your soul. Like, like this one out of John 15, where he says, uh, like, I, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's up to. But I call you friends. It's like, that's Jesus saying, now I call you friends. This is, Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Remain in my love. This is crazy stuff, isn't it? So what we're going to talk about tonight is more difficult, but it's built on that foundation. So don't ever like, forget that foundation. All right, can I move on? Awesome. <laughs> You're thinking, please, hurry. All right, here's the first thing. Five things you've got to know if you want to stay engaged. Number one, life is hard. <laughs> you know, to quote the great American theologian John Wayne... He said this, life is hard. I can't do a good John Wayne impersonation. Maybe you guys can do it. John, he said, life is hard. It's even harder when you're stupid. <laughs> like, that's like one of the best quotes I've ever found, you know. <laughs> Jesus, John 16, 33, says, in this world you will have trouble. That's like a great refrigerator verse. In this world you will have trouble. Here, here, here's, the, here's the deal. There's an unrealistic expectation that we have that life shouldn't be difficult, and that makes us really, really fragile. It makes, us, it makes it really, really hard to go through life like when we think that it shouldn't be difficult, that it shouldn't be hard, that I shouldn't have trouble in, in this life. And so I love the way that Jesus reminds us, and John Wayne, that life is hard. And so like, I, I just want to encourage us, don't, don't give in for a minute to that unbiblical truth that life should be like pain-free and comfortable and easy like in every single part of life. Don't give in to that. That's an, that's an unbiblical truth. It's not true. It's kind of this like uh, American ideal that you should be on this upward trajectory your whole life and it's just going to get better and better and better and there's no crosses to carry. Like it just totally goes against what we read about in the scriptures and what Jesus talks to us about. And so lots of us have this kind of underlying presupposition when I start to experience trouble that it's like, you know, that it's abnormal. That difficulty is abnormal. That hardship is not normal. I mean, if you just think about it for a minute, it is absolutely normal in our world for things to break down. I joked about crying when my motorcycle doesn't run. And the one I have right now, like I take it apart every winter. I put it back together. That's why there was winter. It's called fix your bike season, right? And uh, a few years ago, Brenda helped me buy like this little lift from Harbor Freight and I just roll my bike up on it and I step on the pedal, it lifts it up. I don't even have to bend over anymore. Life is so easy, right? And I take it apart and then it runs like the other two months out of the year that I don't have winter. <laughs> it's normal for equipment to break down. It's normal for it to break down. That's like a normal thing. Brenda and I are getting ready for our 30th anniversary, like being married for 30 years to the same amazing woman. It's coming up this year. I've been saving up money, and I've got this little place. You know, I, I put money in the bank. My whole family knows it's there. Everybody knows it's there, and sometimes it gets spent, you know, and I try to save it. But when I really want to save up money, I put it, like, underneath the, my dirty socks, like in the sock drawer. I just hide it underneath there. And I had saved up, like, 3500 bucks. And I'm planning, you know, for something for our anniversary. And all of a sudden I notice every time the furnace kicks on, you could get like a vibrating massage on the dining room floor that's over the furnace. Like, 
you know, something's going out. And I go down there, I look it up online, I do a bunch of Google searches, I look at YouTube videos, and I go down there and stand next to it, and like my laptop's shaking like this as I'm watching stuff on there because it's like, it's like my furnace is going out. So I called a couple furnace guys that I know, and I got a bid, and last week I got a new furnace. And there went my 30th anniversary money. I mean, just like, it's normal for stuff to break down. And you could get really mad about it. You could throw, you know, fits about it. But it's normal to misplace things and not be able to find them. And you don't have to always blame everybody else. I learned that, especially as my hair's gotten wider. It's normal in this world to not be able to buy everything you want to buy. It's normal. Like, that's a normal thing. These are really good things to learn the younger you are. Do you, do you realize it's normal to be hassled at your job and for it not to go well? And, and you know the reason why? It's because there's other humans there. Right? Have you ever heard the old line? Pastors like to use this line. Like, if you ever think you found the perfect church, like, don't go there. Because you walking in is going to make it imperfect. <laughs> politics is just two people in a room trying to figure stuff out. Like, that's where politics starts. It's just us trying to like work things out with one another. And, and so it's like it's normal to not get along. It's normal to have less than perfect relationships at home. Like those are all normal things. Life is difficult. And, and the problem, one of the problems when we begin to believe that those things are abnormal is that we can't bear much weight. We, we can't hold up under much hardship when that's going on. We collapse easily. Our marriages collapse easily. People collapse, they, you know, they just give up on their, their jobs, we're easily wounded, we easily quit, we easily throw in the towel when we be begin to believe that hardship is abnormal. You know, think about the people you know who've quit, who've quit following Jesus, who've quit church, who've quit their jobs, who've quit marriages, who've quit relationship with you. You just think about people who've quit, and it's often because it got tough, it's hard. Well, welcome to life. It's like, that's the way life is. Are you guys encouraged yet? This is the good part. <laughs> right? Lots of people have had this attitude, if God's going to allow this difficulty in my life, then screw him. It's like, I've talked to people that have had that attitude. Like, they're just going to walk away from stuff because it's hard. And the trouble that we experience is going to cause pain in our lives. I, I promise we will get encouraging at some point. It will cause pain. But, and we can't really learn to grow unless we stop running from our pain and then allow God to bring healing to our lives in some pretty deep ways. And I believe that he can do that. He's done it in my life. You know, you're probably really aware of how this works. When you hold on to the pain that being in life has caused you, what you find is you pass that pain on to other people pretty easily. When you hold on to that pain, you pass it on. Like, really easily. I used to live next door. I told you that I've had neighbors in my life that are like, for some reason, really don't like me. And I'll never forget, one of my first, the first house I ever bought, I'm living next door to this woman who, and I was probably in my late 20s, and in, uh, she had a son a few years back who in his late 20s had, uh, had gotten cancer and died. And she was so mad about that still. And now it had been like, I don't know how long it was. It was probably 20 years before I met her. She was still like really, really angry. And I'm a drummer. She heard me practicing drums in the basement one day. And when I came out to do something in the yard, she yells over the fence at me. Hey, was that you playing drums? I go, yeah, that was me. You're horrible. 
My son, though, he was really good, but man, you're horrible. And like, that's how she responded to everybody because she just never let God come heal that deep pain in her life from losing her son. That's a horrible thing to go through. Absolutely it is. But when you don't allow God to come heal the pain that you experience, you will pass it on to other people. And you'll be a hard person to live with. And so what God does is he invites us into this enduring perspective about this. So if you read the rest of John 16, 33, it goes like this. Jesus is going through and he's telling them all this tough stuff in John 16. And he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I love the way that Jesus says, in me you may have peace. Why? Why can we have peace? Because he overcame all the pain. He overcame the world. He entered into our planet, into our brokenness, into all the mess that we've created. He lived the full result of all of that. And then he overcame it. We now follow the resurrected Christ. We now follow the risen Christ. And we have his peace and his presence in our lives. And it's as we place our confidence in him that we can experience Uh, rather than placing our confidence in ourselves, that we can experience peace in the midst of trouble. And so Jesus says, take heart. Take heart. He says, don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't quit. Do you realize that there are like dozens of like exhortations throughout the scripture to not give up? Like why would we have dozens of exhortations in the scripture to not give up if it wasn't because we were going to want to give up? I think that's why they're there. And so like Matthew 24, Jesus says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. There's something about standing firm and not giving up. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There's endurance in there, standing firm. Hebrews 10, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. I love this, Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that's ours in Jesus. This is John banished to the island of Patmos, right? And he's looking across like uh, the sea and he can picture like the seven churches of Revelation. Like they're all over there. And they're going through intense persecution, Like every pastor, every leader of those churches is being slaughtered. And John writes this, I, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that's ours in Jesus. That's what he's passing on to us. Suffering, the kingdom of God, patient endurance. Or this first Peter, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Like we're invited into this thing. Life is hard. But Jesus says, in me, you might have peace. Take heart. Stand firm. I've overcome the world. That's the first thing you got to know if you want to make it to the end. Right? That's the first thing you got to know. Life is hard. Jesus is there. Second thing you got to know. These get more encouraging as we go along. You are not that important. (laughs) Right? You're not that important. Our culture passes on to us 
an inflated view of our own importance. Have you guys seen the commercial recently of the, the father and the son? They're getting into the uh, they're getting into the, like the minivan after the soccer season, and the kid's got a trophy that says, you know, participant. He's got the trophy on there. Have you seen this commercial? And the dad like rips that off and pulls out a sharpie and says winner and gives it back to his son. It's like our culture passes on to this, you know, this inflated view of, of like how important we really are. You know, a gathering recently, uh, this is about like five years ago, of American high school teachers reported it's very difficult to get students to write papers or do research on objective information. What they would much rather do is give their feeling about a subject, their opinions are more important than the data or the information, right? All of a sudden, the information is not important anymore. It's how I feel about it, right? We love to say what we like and what we don't like, as if everybody should freaking care. But no, we don't all care about that. So we have this, like, because of that, we've, we've, our culture's passed it on, this inflated view of our own importance and our, and, and our own opinions, and then a strong sense of entitlement. Listen. It is pretty easy as guys to live self-inflated, you know, self-centered, self-pleasing, self-oriented lives. It's easy just to focus on us and what we need. I'll, I'll never forget as a young man, I'm driving to church one Sunday morning and to play drums like for worship, right? I love Jesus and I'm supposed to love people and so I'm driving to church and I'm gonna play drums and, and um, uh, you were the drummer, right? That was sweet tonight, way to go, dude. I was having fun watching that. I was worshiping while you were doing that. I couldn't sing. I was like, ooh, 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 ooh. But I was worshiping all the way. Anyway, I got distracted. Never happens to me. I'm driving to church, and I see this kind of homeless-looking gal on the side of the road, uh, you know, just lighting up a cigarette. As I'm driving by, I, I, I remembered this old thing. I grew up in a, like a teetotaling, like non-smoking, non-Christian, but totally like you know, don't do any drugs, alcohol kind of family. And as I, I drive by her, I just, this thought comes into my head. And, and uh, speaking of somebody who was smoking a cigarette at the time, and, and the thought was this, it's not, I'm not proud of this, the thought was this, a flame at one end and a fool at the other. And I just keep driving by, and all of a sudden I hear the Holy Spirit say, that's not what I think about her at all. And it's one of those times driving and crying, you're welcome. And I get to church and like the whole time I'm playing worship, I realize I don't see people the way God sees people at all. I realize that maybe for most of my young life at that point, I had seen people, especially women, as like mannequins. Like they're just like holding clothes. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's nice. But not even actually caring about the person. Like that is so broken. That is so absolutely broken. We have this strong sense of entitlement and we can live self-centered lives pretty easily. And whenever somebody else starts to grab our share of the limelight, like we get really upset and frustrated about that, right? They, 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 they take part of the like, I'm special pie. I'm like, that's my pie. How come you're taking a piece of my pie? And, and because of this, we often despise any authority outside of ourselves. We tend to think our authority is the best authority. If I was in charge, everything would be done right. One of, the, one of the rules, one of the things that God taught me about leadership pretty early on over and over and over again is there's no way you can be any kind of a good leader until you can become a really good follower. 
There's just no way that you can do one without the other. And, 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 and so nothing is more destructive to our country. Nothing is more destructive to a family. Nothing is more destructive to a work environment than a self-oriented man. Selfishness destroys families. A self-willed father destroys their children, devastates their children, creates intense anger and resentment in their kids. So, like, don't ever use the Bible, you know, claiming to be ahead as a scapegoat for treating your family like a pile of poop. Like, just don't do that. That's not helpful at all. So, you begin to look at this. What was the main point I was making? Oh, yeah, you're not that important. To begin to look at this, John chapter 3 Verse 27, John the Baptist, his disciples are coming to him, beginning to complain that Jesus is grabbing the limelight. The younger cousin's taken some of the I'm special pie from John the Baptist, who's been out there working hard. And listen to what John the Baptist said. I love this. Uh, it's John 3, 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said... I am not the Messiah, but in sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. I love what John the Baptist says here. A person can receive only what's given from heaven. He understood he could never exceed what God had given to him. And he was content with that. That God's the one who gives us our gifts and abilities. He's the one that gives us place. He, he's the one, and we've got to be content with what he's given to us. We start out as kind of young men on a, you know, what one, I think a few writers have called kind of a heroic journey, trying to discover what we can do and what we can accomplish and how many mountains we can climb. And it's like a period of idealism that's actually pretty necessary in our growing up as, as adult males, where we think we can tackle all the world's problem, but what we need to experience along the way is our weakness. What we need to experience along the way is that we don't have the answers all by ourselves to every problem. A, a, a young man who never gets to spread his wings and try becomes really angry and resentful, but at some point, you know, uh, until we experience our own limitations and our own boundaries, like, we can become really destructive. We need a true sense of who we are. We can't fly like the eagles, right? The song is great, but don't jump off the roof thinking you can do it. Like we can't make it. So like John, we say, I'm not anybody's Messiah. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the one who can do this. All right, so we're not that important. I want Clint to come up and finish off this point. Clint is, uh, I introduced him last night if you weren't here. He's on our staff at Vineyard Duluth. I think he just hit the bottom of it once and it goes. Does that work? Yeah, yeah. There it is. There you go. Go for it. Take it away. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. So I get to be the encouraging one here, which is super fun. Um, so like Michael said, we're not that special. But we are deeply loved. Like just think about that for a minute. We are deeply loved. Now, I know that we know this like up here. But sometimes it's really hard to believe it and to feel it. And I know that uh, Michael, he's asked me to share about this a little bit because God has been really working in me to try to make this, the fact that I am deeply loved, like my identity. Because for most of my life, which I know a lot of you think is like 15 years, but it's a little bit more, a little bit more. Uh, 
being a deeply loved child of God has not been my identity. I get really wrapped up, uh, and I have my whole life, in performance. I do a good job, I feel good. I do a bad job, I feel terrible. I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate. Um, and doing a good job, it's not a bad thing. But when it becomes like our identity, then it just gets crazy. Um, I can remember when I was a private investigator, which was a crazy job. I was only as good as my last case. So I can remember tracking a lady into a different state, uh, finding her where other investigators had failed, and I spent a couple days taking pictures and videotaping, and I had all this information, and I got to go back to my client and say, look what I did, look how special, look how important I am, look how good I am, and I felt great. But the next case I worked, I lost the guy I was tailing within five minutes. Five minutes. Didn't see him the rest of the weekend. And you know what? When I looked in the mirror after that, I saw the worst person in the world. I felt terrible. And uh, when, we, when we don't get this, when we don't feel, when we don't believe, when we don't put our weight down on the fact that we are deeply loved, we are ruled by our fears and our insecurities. And um, that's just not what God has for us. That's not what he has for us as people, as men. It's just, there's so much more. Uh, let's see, there's a couple of verses here. It says in Luke 10, 20, Do you not know that your name is written in heaven? And then in Matthew 10, 30, And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the very hairs. Now, I love my wife. I don't know how many hairs are on her head. I could probably tell you how many are like on the, on the sink and in the shower, and it's a lot. But I don't know the, the hairs on her head. But God, he knows us. He knows our successes and our failures. He knows our strengths and our shortcomings. He knows everything about us, and he loves us. He loves us in our, in our public lives. He loves us in our private lives. He loves us all the time. Nothing we do can make him love us more, and nothing that we do can make him love us less. And now, this is easy to know up here. It's hard to believe in here, and it's hard to live a life like that. But if we did, what would life look like if we walked around knowing and just secure that our Heavenly Father loved us? We wouldn't be controlled by fear. We wouldn't be scared to, uh, to have those hard conversations like with work colleagues. We wouldn't be scared to share the gospel. When, uh, when something happened, when we failed, we wouldn't feel less about ourselves. We could still look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm okay because I know I'm loved. And so this, it, uh, it became very real for me uh, about six months ago, my wife, Erin, she was having some, some ongoing health issues. So she went into the doctor, and they ran tests, got her checked out, and it uh, turns out she needed surgery. Now, it wasn't a major surgery. It was just supposed to be a, a day-long thing, but it was still surgery. So we, we were telling family. We were telling friends. We got people praying for us. And uh, quite a few of my really close friends, they came up to me, and they said, Hey, Clint, how are you doing? Are you, are you hanging in there? Like, are you, are you experiencing Jesus in the midst of it? And, you know, so like a good pastor, I lied to them. And I said, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm fine. I'm experiencing peace. God is good. Glory be, you know, all that stuff. But I was a wreck. I was a mess. I was scared. I was worried. And then I started, uh, you guys ever play the, the what if game? That's one of my favorite games. So I started, you know, well, what if, oh, what if there's complications? 
and we can't have kids? What if my wife doesn't respond well to the anesthesia and Aaron just never wakes up? What if something crazy happens and she's on bed rest for a couple months and my mother-in-law moves in with us and has got to take care of her? I was scared. I was very scared. Uh, so one night I was praying about this and I really felt God say, he said, Clint, I love Aaron. Now there wasn't a promise there. There wasn't a, I love Aaron and she's going to be okay. It was just, I love Aaron. I was like, well, that's nice. Then I heard God say, and I love you. But then what he did is he started going through, he started going through uh, my what if list. He said, Clint, I love you even if you guys can't have kids. And I felt peace. And I love you even if your mother-in-law moves in with you. I was like, that's good. Help me with that one. And then I heard him say, Clint, I love you even if your wife never walks out of that operating room. And that was a hard one to swallow. That was a hard one. But you know, I remember the moment when I chose to believe that. When I said, okay, God, I choose to believe your word, that I'm deeply loved, that no matter what, you won't, be, you won't leave me, you'll always be with me. And I'll tell you what, that made all the difference in the world. Then I was really able to love my wife well. I was able to be there for her when she got scared going into surgery. I was able to love my crazy in-laws when they were freaking out in the operating room because there were complications. And we had to sit there for at least an hour longer with this, <laughs> this, uh, this receptionist who was about 90 years old and a total racist. Uh, it, was, it was just crazy. But I was able to be like the rock and keep everybody calm in that situation. So since then, I feel like God's really invited me into every aspect of my life to look and see if, I, if I'm walking that out, if I'm putting my weight down on I am deeply loved. And because of that, like my life is just changing. I'm better able to relate to authority, knowing that no matter what, whether they approve of my work, whether I fall short, successes, failures, I'm still loved. I'm better able to get up in the snowy uh, Minnesota mornings and shovel my neighbor's driveway because I know that I'm deeply loved and that God cares deeply for other people. Oh, by the way, my, my wife, she's fine. Full recovery. Uh, so I just, I feel like that's the invite for all of us tonight with this. Like, what would it look like if at our very core, we believed that we were truly loved? And if we put our weight down on it, like, how would that affect every single area of our lives? Because really, as Michael's going to talk about, here's your softball, our lives aren't about us. Our lives aren't about us. And when we get this, when we know that we're deeply loved, we're able to better love and serve all the folks around us and really be a, a better representation of Christ to them. That's all I got, boss. Thank you. All right, so the first one was uh, that life is hard. The second one was you're not that important. The third one was your life is not about you. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 19, reads like this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There's a book written a few years back by Donald Miller 
that's uh, called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. In that book, he's telling a story about him trying to learn how to tell his own story. And while he's editing a script for a movie about his life, somebody makes this point to him. He said to me that I was a tree in a story about a forest and that it was arrogant of me to believe any differently. And he told me that the story of the forest is better than the story of the tree. You know, the, the truth is, for every single one of us, we want to be the main character, the central character in the story of our lives. In fact, beyond that, I think we want to be the main character in the story about everybody's life. Right? Have you ever noticed, uh, I'll never forget how a, a really loving pastor pointed this out to me many years ago. He said, Michael, how come you're like the hero in all of your stories? And my response was, because uh, I am. <laughs> Wrong answer. You know, we have this really inflated view, and, and so it's, it's life is not really about us. That what we've done when we do that is we've substituted a part for the whole thing. So we've substituted a part of the story for the whole story. Your story is part of a much bigger story. Like we get to participate in the story of what God's doing in the world. We get to be a part of that. He's invited us into that, but it's not our story. And this is a, this is a seismic shift. This is a monumental shift in how we think about life and how we think about how we fit into this. And none of us take this very easily. Thankfully, we have a really good mentor Jesus, who in Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was the entire way that Jesus lived and left us as an example to live. His entire purpose was to do what the Father's doing, to be a part of what God was doing and sent him to do, no matter what it cost. He was participating in what God's doing in the people of Israel. He was participating in what God's doing in your life, in my life. It's like it's part of the story. And we're invited into that. It's sometimes a small part, sometimes a, a, you know, a big part of the story. But we're invited to participate in it. And, and I believe that God wants to express his love through us in really great ways to our families, our neighborhoods, our churches where we work. He wants to express his love through us in really powerful ways. We get to be part of that. But we lose all of that when we believe that the story is about us, that we're the central character in that. Paul writes the same kind of thing, Galatians 2.20. I live now not my own life, but the life of Christ who lives in me. I live now not my own life, but the life of Christ who lives in me. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writer of most of the New Testament, understood that there's no way that he could do what he was involved in. That if, if, if the story was far too big, far too all-encompassing, far too demanding, far too difficult for him to do it alone. He understood this was Christ living through him. And so without the power and the presence of the resurrected Christ, there's no way he can do that. So we don't need to concoct an identity for ourselves. We don't need to kind of try to build up our own identity in this. We need to discover and enjoy the identity we already have in Jesus. He's given us a remarkable identity as being deeply loved sons of God. Colossians 3, 4. Our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. He is our life. 
And when he is revealed, you will be revealed in all your glory with him. I love the whole chapter of three of Colossians is wonderfully written to show us how we're supposed to live this out in a super practical way. That we set our hearts on the bigger story of what God's up to, what he's doing. That our life is no longer our own. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when the old life, when the old desire to be the center of the story, Colossians 3 comes back to the surface, Paul says, put it to death. And stop with the old categories of who's more deserving or less deserving or better off. Rather, he says, clothe yourselves and begin to develop this radical humility, this sacrificial willingness to participate in whatever God's doing in any person's life that you come across. That nobody's more worthy of it, nobody's less worthy of it to serve and love and forgive those around us. That's what he invites us into in that. And so we can embrace this radical humility simply because we know that someone believes in us, someone has taken you seriously, has offered you deep respect and invited you to participate. Now think about that. Let's let that soak in. Let me read that again. You can embrace that kind of radical humility because you know that someone believes in you, that your heavenly father has taken you seriously, that he's offered you his deepest respect and he's invited you to participate in what he's doing. That's pretty cool. That's what God's invited us into in that. And I think that there, like within every single guy I've ever met is this deep desire to simply say, yes, I want a piece of that. Like I wanna play that game. Put me in the game, coach. Like, could I have the ball? Let me do that. And there's this fear that we have that rises up almost immediately that says, what will happen to me if I say yes to God? Like, where will I have to go? What will I have to do if I say yes to God? Like, I don't think I've met a person, and I work with a lot of young leaders, I don't think I've met a single person who hasn't had that fear at some point. Like, what's going to happen? Here's the thing I've discovered over the course of my life is that it's way more fun than you ever thought humanly possible to get to participate in who God's calling you to be. Like it's like the fulfillment of every fiber of your being to get to do what he created you to do. Even though on the outset you might think, I don't think I wanna do that. It's like you were wired for it to say yes to him and to participate with what he's doing. And so there we go. That's, the, that's what was that, the third one? Okay, fourth one. You're not in control. You're not in control. Jesus said a couple different times, something like this in Luke 12, can any of you by worrying add a single moment to your life? <laughs> the answer is no. No, in fact, we discovered by worry we can subtract moments from our lives, right? Becoming correctly oriented in the universe is something that we are invited into. Learning that you're not in control orients you correctly in the universe, according to Dallas Willard. I love that thought, the way that, that he speaks about that. At some point, you have to learn that you're actually not steering your ship. That you actually don't have much control over where it goes. And we don't like that. We don't like that thought at all. Like we think, gosh, the need is so obvious. Like I need a job or I need a spouse or 
I need new tires for my Jeep. I need a car. I need that person's heart to change. I need them to soften up and get nicer. I need a rebellious child to turn around. It doesn't make any sense to me why Jesus, why God wouldn't do this thing. It's obvious, isn't it, that chronic pain hurts. I need the chronic pain to go away. I don't want that in my life anymore. It doesn't make any sense for me to have a sick child and not have them get well. It doesn't make any sense for me to be unemployed or underemployed when I really want to work. And so we come to Jesus presumptuously with our demands, thinking he has to listen to us because we haven't messed up too badly this week. Before we know it, we begin to live out what Bob Dylan sang about. I love Dylan's lyrics. When Dylan sang, do you ever wonder just what God requires? Do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? What song is that? I can't remember that. I can't remember the name of it. But the deal is, like, we're not in control, and he doesn't respond to us that way. Like, you've learned, right, that there are no secret formulas to the Christian life? That if you just do, like, this little formula, you just do it this kind of way, then God has to do what you want? Have you guys figured that out? You know, quite a few years ago, uh, there was a little booklet that was like a huge hit, The Prayer of Jabez. And, uh, and it was this great little prayer. It's like, I don't know, it's just like this four-word prayer hidden in the Old Testament. And what was interesting about it, and I, and I think it's actually, it's like, I think almost any prayer is helpful. <laughs> like, oh, God, help. I think that's a good one. And oftentimes God shows up and he helps me. But it's not like this formula where if I just memorize this specific little prayer and I pray it every day, that all of a sudden God has to do what I want to do. He's not like a genie in the bottle. He's not like an errand boy, you know, like, like Dylan writes about. That he's, that he's not that way that we never, he never like slides over to the passenger seat and says, hey, Michael, why don't you take the wheel for a while? Like he just doesn't do that. That he's totally and completely in control and we have all kinds of formulas that we've tried when we can't get God to do what we want him to do. I, th I think I've discovered that there are two main ways that God matures us in our faith. And, and the first one is he allows us to experience pain. And the second one is he allows us to wait. Two main ways that he controls uh, uh, or matures us in our faith. It's kind of like two main chisels that God uses to bring maturity to our lives. We look at pain and we say no. And we do everything we can to avoid it. We even begin to doubt God's existence because of it. There's a wonderful book called The Heavenly Man uh, by Brother Yoon, uh, a Chinese follower of Jesus and, and pastor. And uh, in there, he tells the story of being taken into prison because of his faith multiple times. In fact, at one point, beaten to his legs are like absolutely useless, black, shriveled up things. He'd been like electric shocked and beaten over and over and over again. And uh, there's this really incredible story in there where at one point he feels like the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, get up and walk out of the prison. And he hadn't used his legs for months. And he gets up and his legs work. And he walks over to the first door and he pushes it and it opens up. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, like this isn't real. And he's walking right towards the guard to get to the next gate and to go through and fully expecting to just be thrown to the ground and pummeled again. And the guard like doesn't even see him. And he eventually finds himself out on the street and he escapes prison. And when he's gone and spoke at churches in, in the West, they've said, man, we're so sorry that you had to go through something so hard. And you know what Brother Yoon's response is? He said, I'm so sorry that you haven't had to do that. 
because the intimacy that I experience with Jesus goes way beyond what those who don't suffer will ever experience. And so God allows us to experience pain. It matures our faith in some pretty powerful ways. I ask God to come heal the pain in my life and other people's life every time there's pain. And sometimes he comes and brings immediate healing. The kingdom comes and it's awesome. And sometimes he says no. And he allows us to walk through that pain. And we have to dig in for deeper trust and, and deeper holding on to his love. And then sometimes he allows us to wait. Abram waited for decades for a son. Rachel waits for years to get pregnant. We see this all the time in the scriptures. The Israelites wait for centuries as slaves in Egypt for freedom. Anna and Simeon wait for their entire lives till the end of their lives when they finally get to see the Messiah. The entire world waits for millennia for the Messiah to come back again. Like waiting is a normal part of this. And, 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 and where it comes down to is this. Are you willing to wait? Are we willing to trust that maybe God knows what's best? You know, being a, having parented kids kind of growing up, like there's many times where it's like, for one reason or another, I had to say no and they had to wait. And now, as a guy with white beard, have you, have you guys figured out that I've learned all my personal grooming tips from Danny? <laughs> He's taught me everything I know about how to groom my face, man. He's, he's a great mentor. You should get mentored by him. You know, what's the best for the person that you're praying for? Do you trust that God knows what's best and you don't have to manipulate stuff? Like, what's the best in every situation? What's the best for his kingdom? One of my prayers oftentimes is, Lord, help me to wait well. I want to wait well in this thing. Hmm. All right. Here's another way to think about this, taking another look at birds. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat, about your body, what you wear. Life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Here's the deal. I want to invite us to actually give up the project of trying to run our own lives and surrender to what God wants to do. That doesn't mean we just sit on the couch, no. That means we actively engage in everything that God puts in front of us. But there's something about just trying to run your own life the direction that you think it should go every step of the way that's incredibly exhausting, incredibly tiring, and it doesn't show that God's actually in control. So surrender is about the willingness to trust that you really are a beloved son of God. That he really does deeply, deeply love you. That he doesn't call you servants anymore, but he calls you friends. And he wants to let you know what he's doing. We do not master the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit masters us. We do not tell him what to do. And so learning that we're not in control is kind of like a re-education of our will. It's a re-education of what we think. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a, uh, one of the spiritual disciplines that I like, to, I like to phrase it this way. It's the practice of not getting your own way. Not getting your own way. Like what would it look like for you 
Just practice it for one day. Try not to force to get your own way in anything. Do you ever order a meal at a restaurant and it comes and it's not like quite what you wanted? Now there's really good times to send that back and say, that's not what I wanted. But what if you just practice saying, you know what? This is what I got. I'm going to figure out how to enjoy it. Like, this is really good. It's especially good. Anybody married? What if you practice for like a week not getting your own way? And letting her get her way? Dude, I don't know. It might make it better. Oh, try it. Tell me, call me. Let me know how that worked. All right? And then but this, the other thing about the birds is, uh, so they're not in control, obviously, but they are some of like the hardest working citizens on our entire planet, right? They work hard. They work hard for their meals. They don't just sit around, you know, birds don't just sit around if you ever watch them, you know, or squirrels or like a lot of wildlife. They don't just sit around like with their mouths open, just like, you know, I hope worm drops in there. You know, maybe, maybe like a pollen will float down from the tree and turn into seeds and like actually just hit me right in the mouth and it'll feed me. It's like, no. It's like you, you got to press into this stuff. You got to work hard at this. So, all right, here's the last one. You're going to die. This just keeps getting better and better. You're going to die. Jesus doesn't come back. You're going to die. Whoever finds their life will lose it, Matthew 10. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. There's an old, there's an old Hindu saying, I love this. The surprise of surprises is that although everybody who has ever lived in this world has died, for some reason we think we won't. Right? Jesus actually invites us into premature death so that we can really live. Jesus invites us into death so that we can experience what life is really all about. One person wrote this, that you and I aren't ready to die until we've truly lived. And Jesus invites us to truly live. And he says the way to get there is to give up your own life. Following Jesus means giving up everything else so that we can be really be liberated. And only then do we have the riches of heaven. This kingdom of God thing is completely upside down. It's completely topsy-turvy. That everything we think we know about life and fighting and trying to make life the way that we've been taught that it works, the Jesus thing is like upside down. Donald Craybill wrote a wonderful little book called The Upside Down Kingdom. It's like, I don't know, it's like 30 years old, but it's a fantastic little book about how the kingdom of God perspective is totally upside down to almost every other thing in our lives. And I find it incredibly helpful. I find this stuff like really helpful for me. We are following the one who has defeated death. And so it's okay to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. It's okay to die a little bit every day to what we think we need. And I love this, you know, Romans 8. I'm certain of this, that neither die, death nor life, nothing that exists, nothing still to come, not any power, not any height, not any depth, nor any created thing can ever come between us and what? The love of God. And so there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to run from. You 
know what? Yes, we're going to die. But we've been given this inner guarantee. The Holy, promised Holy Spirit that death isn't the final thing. So what are those five things that we got to know if we want to stay in the game? What was the first one? Yeah, life's hard. It's brutal. It's even harder when you're stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just got to say that again. What was the next one? You're not that important. This is really encouraging. Who invited this dork to talk? <laughs> Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life's not about you. Life's not about you. You're part of the bigger story. It's not a story about a tree. It's a story about a forest. It's a story about what our Heavenly Father is up to. And it's really, really good stuff. And he's inviting us to participate. What's the fourth one? You're not in You're not in control. God never scoots over and says, hey, Clint, take the wheel. Drive this thing for a while. Aren't you glad that God never ever do that? You imagine what Clint would do with the universe? <laughs> or us? Any of us? And then the last one is we're going to die. And I don't know about you, but I find real encouragement in those because there's like a different side to every single one of those things that God's inviting me in to participate and enjoy like some of the stuff that he has. And so here's the deal. We want to do some ministry time. Is it time? Can we pray? Is it legal? Can we do that here? Yes. Oh, awesome. Great. Thanks, Michael. You're such a sweet guy. <laughs> We're going to do some ministry time. And I think that there's one or two of these things for probably all of us that are harder to receive than the others, that are harder to buy into. Pay attention to where the resistance is. And I think the Holy Spirit wants, wants to come and like Really press in and minister to us. And so I'm going to start with a group prayer time. And I'm going to pray over us as a group for a little bit. Just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Let us soak in his love. And then lean into a couple of these areas. And then, and then we're going to just take some time to pray for one another. And so, like, don't check out. Just kind of stay engaged for a little bit. Even if there's some, like, extended silence. And uh, let's just let God come. All right? Sound good? Let's stand up. Tomorrow morning, what we're going to talk about is kind of a biblical job description, what God's actually called us to and the ways that we engage. So this is the stuff that we, we don't want. These are like kind of confronts the lies we don't want to buy into. And then uh, what we're going to dive into um, tomorrow was uh, is kind of our biblical job description right out of Genesis 2 and 3 and talk about what makes it hard but what we're really invited into. So Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the way that although your way of life seems totally topsy-turvy from ours, it seems totally upside down and backwards. Thank you for the way it just rings true in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for the way that your way of life, following you, our Lord, our Master Jesus, totally makes sense out of all the stuff that we experience and go through. And I thank you for the way, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, that you meet us, just like you met Clint as his wife was going through surgery, that you meet us in those moments and you lead us and you guide us and you give us exactly what we need. And so Holy Spirit, would you come right now would you meet every single guy in the room? 
Thank you for the way that you challenge the lies that we buy into, that we believe, that actually derail us. Thank you for the way you challenge those things. I just had this clear picture of railroad track. And for some of us, there's like huge logs on the railroad track. And, and, our, and our train is like either stopped or we're moving at it at such a speed that it's going to take us off the track. It's going to derail us completely. And the stuff that we were talking about tonight is like taking the logs off the track. It's taking them off the track. That if you allow God to, he will take them off the track and you'll be able to continue on. It will not derail you. And so, Father, I ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, would you confront those things in us that actually threaten to derail us, that wipe us out whether it's inflated view of ourselves, whether it's us always being the hero, whether, whether it's uh, uh, this idea that life shouldn't be difficult, it shouldn't be hard, just running from difficulty, whether it's not having a view of the future and what you're inviting us into. Whatever the thing is, Lord, would you just speak to every single one of us here? Let's come, Lord. Put your finger on that thing, that log. Hmm. Thank you for your incredible deep love and compassion over our lives. for the way that you meet us in the difficulties of our lives, that you're right there. So for some of us, those logs are like a big deal and God wants to remove those. For others of us, there's others of us in the room that the, there is just deep, deep insecurity at not believing that we're loved and just deeply, deeply loved and cared for. That it's almost like we believe the hard stuff, but we don't have the really good stuff to balance it out. And it just leaves us feeling incredibly insecure, even hearing a talk like this. And I just think God wants to meet you with his deep, deep foundation of love that we began talking about last night. He wants to meet you right there. And your, your argument that pops up in your head is, yeah, it doesn't really apply to me. Or maybe your argument is, I'm just not very emotional. I just don't really get that love talk. Whatever the thing is, the argument against it, I believe your Heavenly Father wants to draw close right now if you let him. You just say, come, Lord. So for some of us, control is the issue. 
uh, we've been like uh, control freaks. And we need to be in control and need to see how it works. And God is inviting us to, no matter how difficult it feels, to say, Lord, I've never actually ever been in control. I'm going to lay that down right now. It's a facade of control. I'm going to lay that down before you. And so I just, I just, just picture laying that down at the foot of the cross. You are the only one who's ever been in control, Lord. And so I lay that facade of control, that, that freakish part of me, <laughs> I just lay it down. I just lay it down. So there's the control issue for others. The other word I keep hearing is abandonment. That for, for some of us in the room, it's like we really, uh, for one reason or another, either just the way we've been brought up or not having a dad in our life or you know not having parents we could count on or whatever the thing happens to be, that we just feel like we... Like uh, we feel like we've been abandoned, and um, it leaves us uh, like always, f- always I don't know, always fighting, always having to have things looking a certain way. That we just feel uh, alone, just completely alone. And I believe your heavenly Father just wants to come really close in that right now. And you don't have to identify yourself to me, but just. Identify yourself to God. Just say, Lord, that's me. Like that abandonment thing really runs true. I don't feel like I can count on anything or anybody else. And it leads me to believe those lies. Yeah. Come, Holy Spirit. Release your presence, release your power even more. Um, <clears throat> I just kept, as we're standing there, just I just feel this incredible sense of invitation from God like to set us free as men to really run in what we were made to run in. And that this, this whole thing of, you know, the, I, don't, I think the, mission, the movie was called The Mission. Do you remember the movie called The Mission where a guy kills his brother and his penance? As penance, he has to drag around this net full of all these weights or, or uh, shields and armor and stuff. And it just, it just gets ridiculous. He's going up, you know, climbing a mountain, dragging this thing, and then at some one point the guy just cuts it and it just drops away from him. And I, you know, I, tonight God's not scolding us. He's inviting us into freedom. And I think there's many men tonight that you've become aware as Michael's been going through these points, like, oh, that's me, and I've been dragging that, or I've been afraid of that, or I've been, you know, you fill in the blank of that for years or maybe it's been your entire life I know for me what just was hit me between the eyes is I feel like I always need to be important I feel like I always you know I you know I used to carry a big spotlight around with me everywhere I went okay that was a joke I didn't really I really you're like yeah we figured oh thank you thank you I'll be praying but I but we really want to pray into what God's doing because I just have a sense that all over the room 
God is, is just calling men. Like, you weren't made to waste your life on that. You were made to live over on this. And um, so we, we want to take some time to pray, but I think, Bob, you have a... Um, as, as we were praying, <clears throat> holding out our hands, I, I got a picture of God. Or, or I got a picture of, like, a, just a big, huge bundle that was just holding, you know. And what, the, what came to me was is that maybe some people are reluctant to receive from God because you think it comes with a big set of expectations that you can never meet. And that's not the case at all. God is, is completely different than that. Just think about dropping that bundle. Don't be afraid to accept what he has for you because you think it represents an expectation that you can't fulfill. And uh, one of the things I feel like, I feel like there are some people who have been waiting uh, and you're having trouble experiencing God in the waiting. I feel like it has a, a lot to do with uh, all like chronic health issues that just won't go away. And you're looking forward to when you're on the other side of that. And I feel like God really, really wants you to experience him in this waiting period, much like Michael had talked about experiencing and waiting in pain. So I feel like... Uh, and God just wants to open your eyes about how he's always been there, about how he always will be. So let's do this. If you want prayer, come on up front. I'm just going to do it that way, and let's just see what happens. And uh, if you're like a small group leader, you kind of normally pray for people, then after people get up here and uh, we know kind of who to pray for, then come on up and help us pray. But uh, I think there's a bunch of stuff that God wants to do, so here's the deal. Uh, like he's offering the invite and he's offering some real freedom as, as Michael mentioned and so if you want a piece of that then come on up here and let's get some prayer